Let's open our Bibles up to Revelation chapter 18. Oh, you know, I didn't have my, I left it in my satchel, but I'll tell you anyway. I left an article in there about Paris Hilton. (laughs) Not in the habit of reading articles about Paris Hilton. Certainly don't watch her. But anyway, there was an article just came out, just actually it's world news, just in the last couple weeks about how someone had uh, broken into her house and stolen $2 million of her jewelry. Anybody hear about that? And there was a blog on the internet going back and forth saying, well, it was all fake anyway. I don't know if it was fake or not, but uh, I thought about that. You know, everybody's thinking about Paris Hilton's jewelry and the jewels that are gone. And I don't even know if they caught the person by now. But I just thought about and I thought, jewels, jewels. I said, we need some jewels, don't we? The jewels that we need are in the Bible. God has jewels that are much more valuable than the jewels of this world. And it's precious Bible truth. Precious Bible truth. Those are the jewels that we need. Revelation 18, verse 1, is a mighty text that Seventh-day Adventists have read and pondered for a long time. We'll read it and then we'll pray. 18.1 says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. This is a final burst of light and power to the world before the return of Jesus Christ. And I hope we all want to be a part of that. Uh, we're, we're right there. I mean, this is the time when the Lord wants to pour out His Spirit and send His light and His power upon His people. These are the days, the days of God's power. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, You know what's happening in Your world and You know Your program. And this is the time for Your message, the time for Your power, the time for the latter rain, the time for the Holy Spirit. And we pray that we'll be a part of that, that you will prepare our hearts, purify our hearts, and uh, open our hearts to receive your light and your message. Please, Lord, bless this time that we spend together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it was last year when we were still living up in our house in Auburn in California before we sold it, um, my family, little Seth and my wife, uh, we were looking through the window. I think this was actually right before Abigail was born. She just turned one. We were looking through the window, and we were looking out off into the distance up in the mountains, and we saw the storm that was coming. It was a, a storm, and it was approaching, getting closer and closer. We could see the lightning flashing, and Seth was pretty excited. There's a storm coming. And as it approached, you know, it hit. And it was nice to be inside and watch everything on the outside until the power went out. And we were in total darkness. It was very dark up in those hills of Aubrey. It was probably 7 or 7.30 that night. And it was just pitch black. Couldn't see anything. And so we uh, all huddled together on the couch. And we found a couple of flashlights and turned them on. And, and then we, we prayed. We got on our knees and we prayed. And little Seth prayed. He, he's so cute. Little, pr- little prayer. Dear Jesus, please turn the lights back on. <laughs> please turn the lights on. In Jesus' name, amen. And well, after a little while, Seth said, Daddy, it's still dark. 
And I said, well, Seth, you have to give Jesus a little bit of time to answer your prayer. Just give him some time. So that night, we all slept together in the bed because you know, Seth was scared, and so we're all sleeping together in, the, in Mommy and Daddy's room. And during the night, uh, probably, I don't know, one or two in the morning, I heard the heater kick in. So I knew, okay, power's back on. But then I continued sleeping, and then around 6.30 in the morning, Seth got up, and he said, Daddy, I need the flashlight. I want to go play with one of my toys. I want to go play with my Thomas train or something. And I said, Seth, just switch on the light. And he just thought, switch on the light, but the power's out. And it was still dark, so he went over and he, he switched on the light, and all of a sudden the lights went on. And I still remember, it was so just as only a little kid could do. He just looked at me with his big eyes, and he went, whoa. <laughs> whoa, Jesus answered my prayer. <laughs> the light is on, hallelujah. Well, he was excited. As I think about that little story, I think the Lord wants to turn the lights on, doesn't he? And when this verse is fulfilled and the earth is lightened with God's glory, uh, people are just going to be saying, whoa, this is amazing. This is God's message, God's power, God's light that's going to lighten the whole earth with its glory. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists have been trying to understand more about this light for a long time. And I've done a lot of homework on this as well. And I want to read a couple of quotes from Christ Object Lessons and then one other one from Volume 6 of the Testimonies. Amazing how they both go right together. Christ Object Lessons, page 415, says, It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. And that's still happening. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed. A message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, his mercy, and his truth. Now, a lot of people have read this quotation. And they pondered this and they've read this and they thought, wow, in the end of time, uh, there is going to be a message about God's character that is going to just burst out onto the world. And I believe that. I believe this. But I also know that there is a subtle devil out there that would like to misinterpret the message of God's character. Wouldn't you agree? And in fact, this quote says that God's character has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. So in order for us to understand the message of his character, we need to understand it based upon the Bible. Now, here's another quote that goes right along with it. But it not only talks about the message of his character, but it's another message. It says, sixth six volume of the Testimonies, page 19, says, The Lord God of heaven will not send upon the world his judgments for disobedience and transgression until he has sent his watchmen to give the warning." He will not close up the period of probation until the message shall be more distinctly proclaimed. The law of God is to be magnified. And I'm going to do that during this last time that we have together. Its claims must be presented in their true sacred character so that the people will be brought to decide for or against the truth. 
yet the work will be cut short in righteousness. Now listen to this. It says the message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. Wow. So one quotation talks about the message of God's character. And then the next quotation talks about the message of Christ's righteousness. Now, are these two different messages? Or do these messages go together? Do they harmonize perfectly? Yes, they do. The message of Christ's righteousness and the message of God's, God's character go together perfectly. When you study Revelation 14 and then Revelation 18, Revelation 14, 6 to 12 has the message of the three angels. And then Revelation 18, Revelation 18, 1 talks about this other angel coming down with power and the earth is lightened with his glory. When you study this out, you, can, you, you learn, what I learned, that the message of what you could call the fourth angel in Revelation 18.1 really gives power to the three angels' messages in Revelation 14, that they go together, that the light of God's glory is connected to the message of Christ's righteousness and to the three angels' messages. Now let's try to unpack this. Let's go back to Revelation 14 and let's take a look at the conclusion of the third angel's message, which is verse 12. And I'm going to try to tie a lot of threads in together. The first meeting we had this morning, we talked about God's character being a blend of mercy and justice rooted in love. The second message, we talked about those attributes being revealed in Gethsemane and on the cross. That Jesus revealed God's infinite love and mercy and bore the weight of God's justice against sin so that he could extend his mercy to us because he loves us. Now we're going to take this and we're going to put this into the middle of the third angel's message. And we're going to connect it to the final message of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which the Holy Spirit is going to empower in these last days. Revelation 14, verse 12. This is going to be meat, not veggie meat but real spiritual meat. Verse 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. This is the conclusion of the third angel's message. We know it's the third angel because verse 9 talks about the third angel. The conclusion of the third angel is verse 12, which occurs right before the second coming in verse 14. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that do two things. What's the first thing? They keep the commandments of God. And the second thing is, and the faith of Jesus. Right. Now, this is a very, very powerful verse, and it must be understood correctly. All throughout Christian history, and even Seventh-day Adventist history, and this is just the nature of humanity and the outworking of the devil's imbalances. There have been extremes between the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus or a focus on Jesus Christ. There are extremes and they've been going on for a long time. Uh, in the time of Christ, 
The Pharisees focused on the law, Moses. And there was Jesus right in front of them and they rejected him. Today, in the evangelical world, there's a lot of talk about Jesus, but not much talk about God's law, right? Pendulum goes to the other side. In the time of Christ, they focused on Moses and the law, but neglected Jesus. Today, people focus on Jesus and neglect the law. When you look at Adventist history, the pendulum has been going back and forth as well in our own history. Uh, after 1844, after our pioneers discovered that the sanctuary was not down here but up there, and they went into the most holy place, which is what Revelation 11:19 says, the temple of God was opened in heaven, and they saw the ark. And inside the ark is what? The law of God. And that's how really Seventh-day Adventists got here, was people, instead of looking to the earth, they read Revelation and realized there's a temple of God in heaven. That's what the Bible says. And they looked and the door was open and they saw the ark and they realized that's the most holy place. And then they opened up by faith the lid and they looked inside that ark and they saw the Ten Commandments, one to ten. And then when they got to number four, they realized, wow, the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so instead of just being Adventists, which we used to be, just Adventists, there was Baptist Adventists, Congregational Adventists, Methodist Adventists. Then when they went through the disappointment and they saw the ark and saw the law and counted down one, two, three, four, and they saw the seventh days of Sabbath of the Lord, then they became Seventh-day Adventists. That's how it happened. That's the, our roots. That's where we came from. Well, what happened after that was as time went on, because the, they saw the temple, they saw the ark, they saw the law, they saw the fourth commandment, uh, the brethren started focusing on the law, the law, the law, but they forgot something. They neglected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the little lady that lived back then said, we've preached the law, the law, until we're as dry as the hills of Gilboa, if you remember that quote. Well, what happened in an amazing year, and the year was 1888, there was two young men from California. Amen? <laughs> Some good things can come out of California, right? And uh, these two young men, Alonzo T. Jones and Elliot J. Wagner, the two of them went to the Minneapolis General Conference in 1888, and especially Wagner, with an open Bible, began to give a Bible study to the brethren on Romans and Galatians and Revelation. And the little lady was there, Ellen White, and she heard Wagner's preaching. And she, she saw the beauty. And I'll read that quote to you. Manuscript 15, 1888. She says, I see the beauty of the presentation of the righteousness of Christ in relation to the law as the doctor, E.J. Wagner, has placed it before us. 
I've done a lot of study on this subject. And I, it's very clear to me that what happened at Minneapolis through the preaching of E.J. Wagner in front of the leadership of the church at that time and what Ellen White really appreciated was the pendulum stopped swinging to one extreme, to another extreme, the law or Jesus, or the law without Jesus, Jesus without the law, but the pendulum finally centered. And Wagner preached the law of God, and he combined it with the message of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He combined them together. And not only that, but he then placed them into the middle of the third angel's message. And when the little lady saw that, she said, this is it. This is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory is going to fill the whole earth. That's what she said. The combining of the law and the gospel. Uh, here's another quote from Gospel Workers. I think this is my last quote I'll be reading to you. Page 161. And then we're going to have a Bible study from the book of Romans. And then finish with Revelation. Gospel Workers, page 161, says, If we would have the spirit and the power of the third angel's message... We must present the law and the gospel together, for they go hand in hand. And I'm just thrilled to be able to share this with you. This has been years of my research. Now here I am, having a chance to talk to you. It says, as a power from beneath is stirring up the children of disobedience to make void the law of God and to trample upon the truth that Christ is our righteousness. A power from above is moving upon the hearts of those who are loyal to exalt the law. That's the commandments of God, right? In the third angel's message. And then it says, and to lift up Jesus as a complete savior. There's the faith of Jesus. Unless divine power is brought into the experience of the people of God, it says, false theories and ideas will take minds captive. Christ and his righteousness will be dropped out of the experience of many, and their faith will be without power or life. And that's a powerful quote. Now, you know, I quote these writings, and I believe in these writings. But I want to clarify that the purpose of these writings is to point us to Scripture. Amen. That's very, very clear to me. And when I read my Bible, Revelation 14 does talk about a third angel's message. Verse 9, it's in the Bible. Revelation 14, 12 talks about a group called the saints who keep the commandments of God. That's in my Bible. And the faith of Jesus, that's in my Bible, that God is going to have a final people who put them both together. That's what the scripture says. And nobody's going to shake my faith in what that book says. I believe it, and I'm going to stand on it. And Lord help me, if I have to die for it, I'll die for it. This is Bible truth. So I've studied our history. I've studied the writings of uh, Jones and Wagner. Done a lot of research in the early writings, especially of Wagner. Powerful. And looked up the Bible text that he quoted. And read them in my Bible. And learned what the Bible says. And I've come to the conclusion that... Uh, 
it is important for us to understand some of this history and what people call the 1888 message. But when it comes right down to the final days, we are going to be preaching not the 1888 message, but the Bible message, right? Because we're looking to a, preaching to a world that's lost. And when the final time comes and when the cameras are on us and when the mark of the beast is in force and it's time for the final thrust of the third angel's message, we have to open our Bibles and show people what the scripture says. And that's what Wagner did. Wagner at Minneapolis gave the brethren a Bible study. He did it right from the book. And that's what I want to do right now is have a Bible study with you from the book of Romans. And then we'll go back to Revelation and wind this up. So let's go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Revelation 3, 10. Uh, I'm sorry, Romans. Sorry, thank you for... If I make a mistake like that, you can, you can be like uh, Karen Batchelor and correct me. <laughs> You know, sometimes you see Doug preaching and a little voice comes out from Karen and it's Doug's dear wife saying, Doug, wrong text. <laughs> Romans, Doug and I are both Jews. Uh, I used to be one of Doug's bachelors before I got married. I worked for Amazing Facts for six years and was actually married in his church. He and I are good friends. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Paul wrote this, but he's quoting the Old Testament, showing that the Old and the New Testament both go right together. The Father and the Son go right together. The character of God is one. Verse 10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. All right, that's a good place to start. <laughs> How many of us, based upon this text, have lived righteous lives from birth till now. Anybody out there want to raise your hand? If you raise your hand, you're lying and you just broke God's law. <laughs> Scripture says there's none righteous, no, not one. Now, uh, I'm not going to take all the time to do this right now. I just don't have time. But if you do a study on the word righteous in the Bible, and Wagner did this, and I followed his text. I looked up his text right in my Bible. You'll find text after text where God's law is associated with his righteousness. Like Romans 9.31 talks about the law of righteousness. Romans 8.4 talks about the, the law of righteousness. Isaiah 51.10 talks about those who know righteousness, who have God's law in their hearts. Steps to Christ, page 61, says that God's ten precepts given on Mount Sinai is a definition of righteousness. Righteousness is what's right, and it is revealed and described by the law of God. It is right not to steal, correct? It's right not to commit adultery. It's right for children to honor their parents. God's law tells us what's right, and it tells us what's wrong. And in this ver light of this verse in Romans 3.10, how many people are righteous? How many have kept God's law? It says, none, no, not one. Paul really wants to stress this. He says, none, no, not one. Not even you. Not even me. None. 
Now, verse 19, Paul builds his case and he says, Now we know that what things soever the law says, the law of God, it says to them who are under the law, and then it says that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. This is a very powerful verse. Some people say, our evangelical friends, that the law of God was just for the Jews. But uh, that's not true. You know, honor your father and mother is not just for Jewish boys and girls. It's for non-Jewish boys and girls as well. Not stealing or committing adultery or lying or coveting. This is for everybody. And this verse says all flesh, every mouth. And that in the light of God's law, it says every mouth will be stopped. And all the world, everyone, it says in the light of God's law, is what? Guilty before God. And that's a truth that a lot of people don't like, but uh, you know, it, it's good medicine. It's good for us to know the truth. Truth is always what's best for us, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to swallow, just like medicine. Our, our, our son takes some medicine sometimes, and he doesn't always like it, but it's good for him. He needs to take it. And this verse tells us that this is the truth, that the world is guilty before God. Now, guilty, notice that word guilty. Guilt is something that happens when we sin. When we sin and break God's law, we're guilty. Uh, and, and once you're guilty, you're stuck. And there's no way out of your guilt except for one way, which we'll find out in just a few moments. Uh, verse 20 says, Therefore, in the light of the fact that the whole world is guilty before God for breaking his law, and that's because of God's justice. I mean, remember we read in, in Exodus where it says that he forgives, but he will by no means clear the guilty. He, he still holds people responsible for their sins. And this verse says people are guilty before him. Therefore, in the light of that, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Now, the word justified there, really, in the light of verse 19, means to not be guilty. When you're guilty, you're guilty, and therefore you can't be justified, which means to be not guilty. You cannot be justified. No flesh will be justified in his sight by the deeds of the law. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. A simple way to say it is, let's say somebody broke the law and committed a murder. And he killed someone. But if a man committed a crime and committed murder and he got thrown in jail, he is guilty, right? Now let's say for six months he's sitting in jail and he doesn't, doesn't kill anybody. And at the end of those six months he comes before the judge. And the judge looks at him and said, did you do it? And the man says, yes, your honor, I did kill that man uh, six months ago or seven months ago or however long it was. But then he says, but your honor, he says, for the last six months, I haven't killed anybody. I, I've been keeping the law in my prison cell for six months. Won't you then justify me and take away my guilt and let me go free? What's it going to say? No way. You don't get justified by keeping the law once you've broken it. 
And that's a very powerful truth. Once you've broken God's law and you're guilty before him, no amount of keeping the law for the rest of your life will remove one dot of your guilt. And because of that, there's no way that keeping the law can save us. Because once you've broken it and once you're guilty, you're stuck. And you have no way out but up. Only one way. And that's the context here. And that's the condition of humanity. That's humanity's condition. Guilty before God. Stuck, helpless, hopeless in our own selves, in our own strength. Now, then verse 21, Paul continues and says, but now, now is the good news. Now the righteousness of God, God's own righteousness, he says, without the law or apart from the law, separate from the law, is being manifested like a burst of light into the Roman world. It's being manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul says there's another righteousness of God that is being manifested, but it's separate from the law. And where is that righteousness centered? In Christ. That righteousness is in a person. That person is Jesus. When Jesus was born and he grew up in Bethlehem, or he was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth, and then he lived his life for 33 years, Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law. And Wagner would bring this out in Jones too. They would say things like, every time Jesus resisted a temptation where the devil tempted him to commit a sin and he would resist it, he was weaving a stitch, another stitch in the robe of his righteousness that he was weaving in his own character for us. Commandment by commandment, it says that he submitted to his father and mother. It says that in Luke 3, I believe. Jesus wouldn't lie. He said, I tell you the truth. He kept the Sabbath holy. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day as his custom was. He was a Sabbath keeper. He honored his parents. He never lied. He never stole. He never committed adultery. He never had any idols. He put his father first as a human being, step by step, temptation by temptation, commandment by commandment, Jesus obeyed God's law and he developed a character or a robe of righteousness in our behalf by obeying God's law. He was becoming our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 6 says this is his name by which he'll be called the Lord, our righteousness. I don't have that righteousness, but he does. He's got it. And Paul says, now that righteousness is manifested. And it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, the law looks at Jesus and says, that's it. He's got it. He's doing it perfectly from birth until his, his death. Verse 22 says, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all, them that believe for there's no difference for all have sinned Jew and Gentile and come short of the glory of God and are being justified freely by his grace through the redemption 
that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the center of God's message. He is our righteousness. And then verse 25 says, whom God has set forth. God has set him forth as a propitiation or a sacrifice through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Verse 26 says, to declare, I say, at this time, at this time, and I long for that when this time will be now to the whole world, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, there's his justice maintained, and the justifier, which means he takes away their guilt, they're not guilty, of him which believeth in Jesus. Ellen White comments on this verse, and she says, glorious truth, just to his own law, and yet the justifier of him who has faith in Christ. Earlier we talked about the character of God, that blending of his mercy and his justice rooted in his love. What Jesus did on, in Gethsemane and the cross is the outworking of that character, of God's character, doing this for us. And the message of righteousness by faith, the righteousness of Christ, that message and the character of God message go right together. And the way that God is now able to maintain his justice and yet to justify, which means remove our guilt so we can stand before him as if we never sinned ever, even one time, the way that God can bring all that together and maintain his justice and extend his mercy is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He lived that righteous life and kept the law, and then at the end of his life, he suffered and he died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. So, he's a perfect savior. He's got the robe of righteousness to cover me, and his death on the cross pays for my sins. And if I'm willing to make a choice, and there is a choice here to say, Lord, I want you instead of my sins and give up my sins and have faith in him. As soon as I do that, amazing, amazing, Jesus will then clear my guilt, take it away as if I never sinned and apply the righteousness of Christ to my life that robe of righteousness he will place upon me and even says into me. It'll work its way inside of my heart. Work its way inside of my heart. And that's how the character of God's justice and mercy is revealed in the plan of salvation and in the message of his righteousness. It goes right together perfectly from the book of Romans. When we understand what Jesus means to us, what he's done for us, how precious he is to us, how he's our righteousness, not us, and we embrace him and trust him. Somebody once uh, said to Wagner, they said, uh, I, I, I'm so dis discouraged, I'm about ready to give up on myself. And Wagner said, good, good. Give up on yourself and trust in him. He's your righteousness. He's your light. There's that burst of light that no matter how sinful, no matter how dark, no matter how bad your past, your life, whatever it is, Jesus Christ's righteousness 
is enough for you. He has a white robe, a perfect robe that he wrought out for you, that he's offering you. And he says, give me your sins, I'll give you my righteousness. Sound like a good trade? Romans 5, verse 5, talks about when we understand this, it says, hope does not make us ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given to us. I told you in the last meeting, my testimony, that when I got on my knees at the age of 20 in a dorm room and decided to give up my marijuana ways and all my crazy living, and I trusted Jesus as my personal Savior, I felt this burden of guilt just lift right off me. It was gone. And I felt this wonderful spiritual peace and love just come into my heart, and I knew that God was real. I knew that I was forgiven. I knew that I was, I was a new person. My past was over, and now I stand before him as if I never sinned. And it was just so powerful. And that's what, that was the channel to bring God's love into my heart, just like this verse says. Romans 8, 4, then we'll go back to Revelation. Romans 8, 4 says that the righteousness of the law, there it is, the righteousness of the law, might be fulfilled. Now, it was fulfilled in Christ, wasn't it? Wasn't it fulfilled in Jesus? Yes, it was, in our behalf. But then Paul says that the righteousness, righteousness of the law might be fulfilled where? In us. That's right. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes in through the message of Christ's righteousness, that Holy Spirit then comes into us, changes us, begins to change us, and then leads us and enables us to become commandment keepers because now we have Jesus Christ and we're clothed in his righteousness and we have his Holy Spirit. Make sense? Now go back to Revelation 14, 12. When God describes a people at the end of time who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. They don't keep the commandments of God in order to earn God's favor. They don't keep those commandments in order to have their guilt removed. You can't do that. It's impossible. And what the brethren were doing prior to Minneapolis is they were preaching the law and telling people, keep it, and then you'll be saved. And Wagner lifted up the law and said, look at it and realize how lost you are. And then look at Jesus, your, your Savior, the only one who kept it perfectly and who now offers you his righteousness. And the brethren said, he's getting, he's getting rid of the law. And Ellen White said, no, he isn't. And Wagner said, no, I'm not. I'm upholding it. In fact, I'm putting it a little bit higher than you are. I'm putting it a little bit higher than the brethren, and I'm showing the law is so holy that in, in its light, 
Our mouths are shut. We're guilty before God. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. And so Wagner made, ultimately, his focus was Christ. But he put the law and the gospel together and brought people to that experience of of realizing their need for Jesus in a way that they'd never felt it before. Some rejected it, some accepted it, and some didn't know what to do with it. And eventually, uh, those two men went on the trail with Ellen White right with them, and they preached from camp meeting after camp meeting after camp meeting, right from the Bible, lifting up the message of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, let me tie all this up in the time that we've got left, a little bit more, with the third angel's message. Um, In those days, people would write Ellen White, and they would say, what do you think of the message that these men are preaching? How does this tie in to the third angel's message? Is it the third angel's message? And then Ellen White wrote them, wrote back, and she made a statement that has been very confusing to a lot of people. She said, what these men are preaching, the message of Christ's righteousness and justification by faith in him, she said, it is the third angel's message in verity. It is the third angel's message, what they're preaching. Now, how do we wrap our minds around that? Well, let me show you. When you read Revelation 14, verse 9, the third angel gives his message with a loud voice. If any man worships the beast in his image and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink the wine of the wrath of God. When September 11 hit 2001, anybody remember what day it was? Tuesday. 9-1-1 was a Tuesday. That's right. Three days later, on a Friday, religious leaders came together in Washington, D.C. at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. to listen to Billy Graham and other speakers and to come together for prayer. Two days later, something significant happened. And it didn't just happen in America. It happened in Australia. It happened around the world, mostly in America, but other countries as well. On Sunday morning, church attendance went through the roof. People went to church like never before in America. Crisis on Tuesday, unity on Friday, Sunday, church attendance soaring that following Sunday. That was a little window into reality for us. What's going to happen in the days ahead, and and we may be on the edge of it right now. You know, what's happening with our economy? What's going on in the world right now? Things can continue to unravel, and we may find ourselves in a crisis that this country does not get out of. And based on what happened in September 11, and which is in the great controversy, and they fit perfectly together, when a final crisis hits this world in the days ahead, and when it comes, um, crisis results in Sunday observance. It's just like um, one plus one is two. And when a bigger crisis hits and a final crisis hits, I guarantee you, people will be going back to church on Sunday all around the world. And as things continue to get worse, eventually Sunday observance will turn into Sunday laws. You can guarantee it. It's going to happen just as 2 plus 2 equals 4. And when that time comes 
and the beast and the image and the mark are all here. And Sunday is enforced by law as a final last-ditch effort to get people to come back to God, to pray for the survival of our country and our planet. That will be the time for the third angel to speak with greatest power. Exactly as it is written in the Bible. The third angel followed, saying with a loud voice, and there'll be warning about the beast, the image, and the mark, saying this, this is not a good thing, it's the mark. It's the wrong day, and it's force being used. And then verse 10 says, the same will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. We'll be warning that those who continue to break God's law will eventually receive his wrath without mixture into the cup. And this, that would be a perfect opportunity to say, someone drank that cup in the Garden of Gethsemane 2,000 years ago for you and for me. It was Jesus. He drank the cup himself. He took our place of breaking the law of God, the whole world breaking God's law. He took all that guilt into his mind and into his heart, and he paid the full price for you and for me. When we're preaching the third angel's message and telling people that you've, you've, you're breaking God's law, if we just leave them there and say, now start keeping the Sabbath or you're lost, that's not enough. That's not enough. Once you show people their guilt, you've got to show them the Savior. And we've got to do it right from the Bible. And we'll open up our Bibles and we'll show them. Here's the warning about drinking the wrath of God into the cup without mercy but then we'll go right to Gethsemane. In fact, at the end of verse 10, it talks about the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And we're going to lift up the Lamb like never before. Lift up the Lamb to the world because they'll need the Lamb. When the whole world is moving in the direction of Sunday and they're breaking God's law, that's the hour for the Lamb. We've got to focus on Him. And that's what Wagner did. And that's what Jones did. And then it continues to talk about the warning. And then verse 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. And we're not going to tell people, just stop keeping Sunday and start keeping Sabbath or you're going to be lost. If we just do that and we leave out the cross and Christ's righteousness and the Lamb and His suffering and His salvation, if we don't lift up the Son of God, we've blown it. God will use somebody else if our lips don't speak the truth. He'll use whoever is ready to be used at that hour to lift up the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. What is the last word of the third angel's message? Last word. You look at the third angel's message. What's the very last word? Verse 12, before the period. Jesus. That's right. Jesus, period. He's the conclusion of the third angel's message. And the whole world needs to see him. And the only way they're going to get rid of their guilt is through him. He's the one. And then they'll see him. They'll see his righteousness. That's why Ellen White said the message of Christ's righteousness must sound from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God, she says, that closes the work of the third angel. 
that's how it's going to happen. And the Revelation 18.1 angel is going to give power to the preaching of Christ our righteousness during the final hour. We're going to put the law and the gospel together. The character of God is going to be seen blended together. The plan of salvation is going to come together. It's all rooted in God's character, in his love, his mercy, his justice, all of that centered in Jesus Christ. And we've, we've got to have it together when that final times comes. And God is preparing a people right now. And then they will keep God's law. They will love him because they love Jesus. That's why they'll do it. Um, my little boy said to me just a few days ago, and he does it a lot, he said, when we go to bed, hugs and kisses. And then he says, Daddy, I love you. And I tell you, just thrills my father's heart to hear my four-year-old say, I love you, Daddy. Come back soon so we can play with my trains. <laughs> uh, and we are going to be keeping God's law because we love him, because his Holy Spirit is in our hearts, because he's taken our guilt away, and we're clothed in his righteousness, and we're giving the third angel's message in power in front of the world when the cameras are on us, when they're on you. And they learn that you're not going along with the Sunday law. You're keeping the Sabbath. Why are you doing that? Well, you're going to have to tell them. And you can do it right from the Bible, right? Because that's what the world needs. The message from the Bible, the third angel's message from the Bible. And God is going to have a people that are in verse 12. And I want to be that people here, verse 12 says. Where? Here. Is here here? I hope so. I want to be one of these people. I want to be here. Here's the patience, the endurance of the saints. Here are they that keep, and they do keep, the commandments of God, not as man changed them, but as God wrote them, and they have the faith of Jesus, and Jesus is the center of their lives. That is it. I heard a story, and I'll close with this about a um, it's about a young girl and it happened during the Korean War in the 50s. My dad was in the Korean War and I'm glad that he came back or I wouldn't be here. And I, anyway, during the Korean War in the 1950s, a group of communist soldiers came down from the north and came into South Korea and invaded a village and um, took over. And they took all the Christians in that village and they put him in a church. There was a church standing in that village, and they put him in the church. And they took a picture of Jesus, and they put it outside the church on the door. And they, I don't know, tacked it up there or taped it up there or something. And then they stood outside the church with their rifles, and they commanded the Christians to come out of the church one by one and to spit on the picture of Jesus or they'd be shot, shot dead. And so the first Christian walks out, and he was a Christian, but he, he wasn't ready for this. And he just wasn't prepared. And so he saw the rifles looking right at his head, and then he went over. He didn't want to do it, but he did it. He spit on the picture of Jesus, and they let him go. And then the next Christian walked out, looked at the rifles. He was a Christian, but he wasn't ready for this. And he walked over to the picture, and he spit on the picture of Jesus, and they let him go. The third Christian did the same thing. Well, the fourth person to walk out of that church was a young girl with a dress on, a red, I think it was a red dress. She walked out of that church, she was probably 13 or 14 years old, 
She walked out and she stood in front of those, that firing squad with those rifles pointed right at her head. And she looked at them and then she looked up and she said a prayer. And she prayed something like, Dear Jesus, Lord, you died for me and I'm willing to die for you. And then she walked over to the picture of Jesus and she took her dress in her hand and she wiped off the spit as it was dripping down. Wiped it off. And then she walked back over and stood in front of those rifles and she closed her eyes waiting for the bullets. But you know what? Those bullets never came. They never came. Those communist soldiers, as hardened as they were, they were so moved by the courage of this girl that they got together in a little huddle and they talked about it. They thought, wow. They had to respect that kind of courage. And then they changed their minds and they uh, broke up their huddle. They grabbed the first three Christians that had spit on the picture of Jesus, lined them up against the wall and shot them dead. Because they didn't have the courage to stand up for what they believed. Well, time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. The mark of the beast will be urged upon us. And when that time comes, God's church will be sifted. Those that have the courage, who have been preparing to stand up for Jesus and for his righteousness in that final time, they will stand true as the needle to the pole and they will not be moved. And there's a lot of people that will go out and others that will come in. And there will be a shifting going on, a mighty shifting. But when it's all over, there will be a final group from in here and from out there coming together and they would rather die than give up their faith in Jesus because of what he's done for them. They love him. Say, I love you, Daddy, and I'll follow you no matter what. I'll die if that's what it takes. And the good news is that God is going to be watching over that group. They'll be the apple of his eye. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into that burning, fiery furnace. But Jesus was right there with them in the fire. And then when they came out, no smell of smoke. And I tell you, what a witness to Babylon that was. What a witness. May God help us. During the uh, Civil War, someone once asked Abraham Lincoln, and they said, Brother Lincoln, is, is God on our side or not? And Lincoln is said to have responded with a marvelous line. He said, I'm not concerned whether God is on our side or not. He said, the biggest question is, are we on his side? That's the question. And may the Lord help us to be on his side. I definitely feel like he's been here today, don't you? The Sabbath is closed. The sun is down. There's a sweet spirit in this place. Praise the Lord. And it's God talking to all of our hearts, calling us. He's calling us to be like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, calling for us in the midst of a lot of different ideas and theories in this world to stick with the Bible, stick with the truth, stick with the third angel's message with Jesus as our righteousness and to give that message with a loud voice as we're able and as the Holy Spirit leads us. Let's bow our heads and let's pray.
Dear Father in heaven, Father, oh, Father, it's so wonderful to sense the Holy Spirit here right now in this place. And we all just pray in Jesus' name that we will have more of your Holy Spirit. Maybe this is, maybe this is more of the light that is coming down from heaven with great power to lighten the earth with its glory. Lord, please, we need to be praying a lot. We should just continue to pray and pray and pray in the days ahead. Please bless what is happening here. Bless me. These messages that you've uh, helped me to share today, may they uh, ripple out around this area and to who knows where. And may we all have a part in your work in these last days. You're calling us. This is your call, the call of the hour. Please, Jesus, thank you for your precious gift of salvation, the white robe of your righteousness. Please come soon and take us home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.